Well, good to see you folks. It's uh, Lord's Day in the morning, and um, uh, I'm going to have uh, Brother brother Mark uh, is going to read from Romans chapter 9, and verses 6 through 23, and then we'll have a, a word of prayer. And uh, I was informed this morning that uh, Paul Washer, the director of Heart Cry Missionary Society, he's going to have heart bypass surgery tomorrow at 6 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time, and so they want prayer for him, and we appreciate that, that ministry very, very much. So we want to, we'll take a few moments this morning and have some prayer uh, for him. But uh, I, I asked Mark to read Romans 9, 6 through 23. We'll hopefully get there this morning, and that this will kind of prepare our mind for at least part of our, uh, our, our thinking process this morning. So, brother, if you agree okay, with that sure. section. Yeah, so Romans 9, 6 through 23. Um, 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will, shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is, just as it, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole world, throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use? and another for common use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so, and, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Okay. Now let us pray. Father, thank you this morning for the, the great opportunity we have to come together as a people of God and, and worship you and, and glory in thee and to praise thee. We thank you for all of Holy Scripture uh, that gives us insight and understanding into your character, into your nature, into your ways. And, and we would pray, uh, I would pray for the Holy Spirit's help to convey uh, truth in a way that is representative of its holy intent. And I, I thank you that um, 
Uh, you know our hearts and would, would pray that you would work in each one of our hearts to give us uh, insight into the character of holy revelation. And again, I thank you this morning for the time uh, together to uh, assemble with brothers and sisters in Christ and pray our, our time would be profitable, honoring to the and to the good of our souls. And uh, Lord, we thank you for Brother Washer and, and for the Heart Cry Missionary Society and this uh, uh, efforts to extend the gospel really throughout the world. And so we, we pray for him and uh, we pray for success tomorrow. We, we pray for healing in his body. We pray the effect of this uh, surgery would be successful and that he would be um, back um, on the field and being able to, to minister your word in various places and and to um, uh, to uh, conduct his duties as the director of uh, the Heart Cry Missionary Society. So we pray for him, pray for success and, uh, and encouragement to his family. And Lord, we, we pray our, during our time together, you would guide and direct us by your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is our, excuse me, sixth study in this uh, section on the decrees of God, chapter three of God's decree. And, and also, um, there, there's movement we have observed in thought from the general to the particular, uh, more especially on the purpose of God as it relates to the eternal salvation or the eternal destiny of men and women. And that brings us to the subject of the, or the doctrine of predestination. Um, and before actually jumping into the content of paragraph three, I, I thought it might be helpful to consider, which is what we did last week, uh, at least a, a couple of kind of preliminary thoughts. One, that a diminished uh, zeal for the salvation of lost souls is not the fault of the doctrine of either election or predestination. And, and we used fundamentally the example of the Apostle Paul, uh, from whom we learn so much about predestination and so much about election on the one hand. And on the other hand, we read about his arduous labors in advancing the gospel. So he's kind of the A1 example. And then church history furnishes with uh, people like George Whitfield and uh, in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, who pastored in London. And you could go on and on and on about those who embraced and gloried in these doctrines. And as we, we notice, this is really what only gives us uh, hope for any success in evangelism. And then we sought to show also that any serious consideration of the biblical condition of man, what the Bible says about man, the, the concept of his depravity or his complete inability to respond to the gospel, that facilitates an appreciation for the doctrine of election and predestination as we are, are looking at here. So only, only those that are predestined are the ones that are effectually called in time. Um, and I, they are, are called at different points throughout history to repent and to come to Christ when it's pleasing uh, to God to do so, to call them to himself. So this morning I want to focus your uh, attention more especially on the third paragraph, which specifically makes mention of this doctrine. Um, and it reads like this. This is in your, your notes. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. So three major headings this morning. Uh, the first one is simply uh, that the fact that predestination is clearly affirmed. It's clearly affirmed, the first part of the paragraph, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels 
are predestined or predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ. So there's here a clear affirmation of this particular doctrine uh, with a bit of elaboration. And we notice here that the motive for predestination of men and of angels is the manifestation of the glory of God. That's one of the main things I would I would impress upon you to, to, to take away this morning that the goal of predestination or the effect of predestination, it's a manifestation of the glory of the being of God. Uh, in, in both cases, the glory of God is displayed. And we see that this, uh, repet, uh, this it's a repetitious theme in Scripture. Uh, God acts so that uh, his glory will be displayed and manifested. Uh, Isaiah 60, 21 is not in your notes, but... Um, uh, thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, uh, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So we see this theme throughout Scripture. God is, is, is um, desirous for the promotion of his glory. And I would have you notice under this heading that uh, uh, this work of predestination, at least in part, includes men, that is, people. The text indicates in the London Baptist Confession, uh, cites Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34, where it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is in the context of a final judgment where the eternal life is entered into in full measure. Um, there is um, an experience of eternal life when a person repents and when they come to Christ. In John 3.15, it says, Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has e eternal life. So there is this uh, present possession. Let me just read to you from... Um, John chapter 4 and verse 14. John chapter 4 and verse 14 along the same lines. Uh, John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So there's this, this present experience of eternal life. Just a quick quote on that from Leon Morris and his work on the Gospel of John. He writes, the life that Jesus gives is no tame and stagnant thing. It is, um, it is much more than merely the entrance into a new state, that of being saved instead of lost. It is the abundant life, and the living spirit within men is evidence of this. Matthew 25.46, however, speaks of this future sense when eternal life is entered into. These will go away into eternal punishment with the righteous into eternal life. D.A. Carson comments on this section that um, inheritance in the kingdom is prepared for them since the creation of the world. And you'll notice here John 17.24 Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, um, which you have given me, for, the, uh, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then also Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Um, so the glorious inheritance, um, uh, the consummated kingdom was God's plan from the very beginning. And Leon Morris writes, here we have the, the kingdom prepared for them by God before ever they were born. Uh, we should not miss the implication, he says here, of, of God's elect, that they are God's elect. Secondly, the work of predestination includes men and women, but also angels. Um, and the text here that is cited 
uh, is 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels. Uh, George Knight, in his commentary, wrote a very helpful commentary on the pastoral epistles, gives three, three reasons for this. He says, uh, elect is not used elsewhere in the Bible of angels, but here they are so designated uh, to contrast them with fallen angels. And that's Jude chapter 1 and verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then a second reason is to designate them as chosen ministers uh, of God who carry out his will. And then thirdly, um, those who are, are chosen to share in the judgment, to share in the, in the administration of judgment. Knight says, angels designates the, the good created spiritual beings who are God's messengers and who are associated in scripture with Christ's return and, and the work of judging. And another puts it, they're, they're chosen to share in judgment. And this, this idea of angels sharing in God's judgment is a very prominent theme in scripture. And I have at least some of the, the text in your notes before you. Daniel chapter 7, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Uh, his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened." Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Matthew 25, 30, and cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Mark 8:38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. And give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And one more, Revelation 14.10, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So we see that angels are predestinated as well, good angels, and they are, they are ministers of God in, in various ways, and especially in terms of meeting out final judgment. So in the first place, we see that the fact of predestination is clearly affirmed here. Secondly, I want you to think about the intention of predestination. This is a further explanation with respect to this affirmation. Um, and there's a couple of intentions that we'll bring out here. The, the, the basic one, it is to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. And the text cited here in this connection is Ephesians 1 and verses 5 and 6. He predestined us to adoption as sons 
through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Just kind of three or four further points in regard to these verses. One is that in terms of, um, of definition, the term rendered predestined, it means to uh, decide from the beginning, um, to set apart, uh, to decide beforehand, um, Predestined. I hate to use the word predestined to define the word predestined, but that's the word that is used to define to define it. But it's the idea of deciding beforehand. It occurs six times in the New Testament, and Peter O'Brien knows that it's used exclusively of God. So this is a test question. Six times in the New Testament, every time exclusively of God, and, and here they are: uh, Acts chapter four and verse twenty-eight, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become to conform to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then Romans chapter 8 and verse 30, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. 1 Corinthians 2.7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his own will now in terms of intention or goal for predestination um, in, in part it is adoption it's adoption adoption as sons through, through jesus christ to himself john Eady in his work on ephesians writes that saints enjoy the privilege and heritage of adoption and the idea here it's not merely that of sonship but sonship acquired by adoption and peter o'brien i think makes a helpful point he says ephesians 1 5 indicates that before time um, god chose to adopt men and women into a personal and intimate relationship with himself being adopted into his family as sons and daughters is an incredible privilege. And then he writes this, because those now able to call upon him as father were at one time sons of disobedience and children of wrath. So it's not that we were adopted from a position of neutrality, but we were adopted and, and the, the correct description for all of us was children of wrath. Uh, and Edie makes the point that the idea of adoption was, was a favorite with the Apostle Paul, we have in your notes here, um, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Romans 8, 14 and 15. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, uh, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So the, the Holy Spirit produces in the soul that the, there's a sense of being a part of, of God's family. There's a sense in the soul that God is one's Holy Father, and we can draw near to him. One put it like this, the Spirit implants in them the dispositions of children and transforms them into the image of God's dear Son. Uh, he witnesseth with them the Spirit that they are the sons of God. And then more ultimately, this expression in terms of the intention of predestination is to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. It's important to, this, to think this way. Edie notes that this verse describes not the mere result, but the final purpose of God's predestination. And grace, as you guys are aware, it's the idea of favor. 
divine favor proving that man has not only no merit, but that in spite of demerit, he is saved and blessed by God. So what makes this uh, grace glorious um, is that it's a property of God's nature. And what makes it, I think, the object of admiration, um, it's displayed in the salvation of sinners. It's displayed in the salvation of our souls. <clears throat> kind of a little bit of a recap here. Four factors together that feed into this level of uh, praise and admiration. One is our condition. It requires or brings out the necessity of grace. Our condition completely precludes the possibility of salvation by works. And secondly, the, the nature of grace itself. Um, the more general consideration, it's, it's divine favor, more specifically unmerited favor, more specifically unmerited favor in the place of merited wrath. And then third, the source of this grace is the very being of God himself. It's, it's inherent in God's being. Edie says this grace with, um, with its characteristic glory is a property in God's nature, uh, which could have never been displayed but for the introduction of sin and God's design to save sinners. And then also, it, it, it emanates from, because it emanates from the being of God, it's a glorious thing. That in and of itself makes it glorious. Um, it, and uh, I, I have, I think, here, uh, Acts, excuse me, Psalm 29, 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf and strips the forest bare, and in his temple everything says glory. And then also, because it's dis displayed in salvation, this then was his great and ultimate end, that the glory of his grace should be seen and praised, that this element of his character should be exhibited in its peculiar splendor. So a clear purpose of predestination is that God it would redound to the praise of the glory of his grace. So what, we, what we've seen so far, number one, is the, the affirmation of this particular theme of predestination. Secondly, in terms of its intention, <clears throat> it is to the pray, the fundamentally and ultimately to the praise of the glory of his grace and also to adoption as sons. Then, then thirdly and lastly, um, an alternative to predestination or the alternative to predestination. Uh, you could say the sobering alternative to predestination. This is the last part of the paragraph. It says, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice, to the praise of his glorious justice. And, and one of the things that we may not think about too often is that God is glorified in the salvation of sinners and God is glorified also in the display of his justice in the punishment of sinners as well. In each case, some aspect of God's glory is displayed. And the, the text that the confession uses to make this point is Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. And I, I thought rather than just quoting it, I will quote it. But I, I have found um, Charles Hodge's treatment of it very helpful. So that's the additional pages you have here, strictly from Charles Hodge. So he, he gets the credit where the credit is due. So I, I want to read the text and then just kind of go through what he says. And I, I think it facilitates appreciation of the force of Romans 9.22. But the reason I, I printed it out is it's the kind of thing where you're going to want to take it home and, and maybe spend a little bit more time with it and flow through it. And I think you'll find it helpful because I myself have find Hodge helpful, generally speaking, but in this particular section of, of Romans 9. So verse 22 says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that's the text that is used to support this point. 
And then, now, Hodge makes the point that in verses 6 to 24, what Brother Mark read earlier, the apostle, he, he approaches the subject which he had in view, which is the rejection of the Jews and the calling of the Gentiles. <clears throat> and then that God was at liberty to reject the Jews and to call the Gentiles. He shows, number one, shows this by showing that the promises which he had made were not made to the natural descendants of Abraham as such, but to his spiritual seed. The promises were made to his spiritual seed. And this is enforced by the case of Ishmael and Isaac, and especially Jacob and Esau. And then that God was at liberty to reject the Jews. Secondly, by, by showing, reject the Jews and call the Gentiles. Secondly, by showing that God is perfectly sovereign in the distribution of his favors. It's not determined by external relations. It's not determined by the personal character of men. And this is especially brought out in the case of Jacob and Esau because the decision was made before they were born. And, and when you read the lives of Jacob and Esau, Jacob doesn't shine, does he? I mean, as someone that's unusually spiritual, he's kind of a conniver and kind of a deceiver. So it had nothing to do with their works. This was a determination made before they were born. And then when you see what they actually were born, you see that Jacob doesn't really stand out as, as somewhat of a higher moral character. Okay, that it might be seen that it was not according to works, but according to the sovereign purpose of God. And um, th this goes with the following part of Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Well then third, against this doctrine, Hodge, Hodge, Hodge writes, against this doctrine of the divine sovereignty, there are two obvious objections which have been urged in every age of the world. Number one, first, it's unjust in God to choose one and reject another at his mere good pleasure. Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And, he's, and Paul gives two answers to this. The first answer is this, God claims the prerogative of sovereign mercy. Um, and Romans 9, 9, 15 and 16 make this point. Uh, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Um, this is, that's the way it is kind of a verse. He claims the prerogative of sovereign mercy. That's the way it is. God exercises that. that and the second, the second thought is, he exercises this right in the case of Pharaoh, Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Well then, secondly, if this doctrine is true, it destroys the responsibility of man. Romans 9, 19 
You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who he resists his will? And Hodge indicates that Paul gives two answers to this. The first one is the very urging of an objection against the prerogative that God claims in his word and exercised in his providence is an irreverent contending with our maker, especially as the right in question necessarily arises out of the relation between men as creatures and God as creator. So it calls into the propriety, it calls into question the propriety of asking the question itself. Who do you think you are to question God in this matter? Romans 9.20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make the same lump, uh, one vessel, excuse me, to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. And then secondly, there's nothing in the exercise of his sovereignty that's inconsistent with either justice or mercy. God only punishes the wicked for their sins while he extends undeserved mercy to the object of grace, or the objects of grace. So anyway, hope you find those helpful. Now, this, again, this is the kind of thing you can maybe take home with you and, and, and you'll find it helpful as you kind of flow through this particular um, section. So let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, I, I pray that our, our time together would be helpful to our own thinking process, especially as it pertains to your decrees and in particular predestination that you are, are working all these things in accordance with your holy purposes. And I, I, I pray it would facilitate in our own minds a clearer understanding of, of how you operate in this world and that we would um, read your holy word and, and submit to its clarity and we would joy in what you've been pleased to do in our own souls. And so I, I pray it would be honoring to thyself and, and good for our own souls. And Father, this morning as we would gather together to worship you and praise you, I pray that our, our fellowship would be sweet, that there would be a clear sense in our own hearts of the great love that you have for us through your precious and holy Son. And in the meantime, I pray that we would be uh, an encouragement to one another and so just bless our, our time uh, this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.